Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll hear what New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy thinks about the MTA's congestion pricing proposal for Manhattan that's now moving into the public hearing stage. Because of the uniqueness of how the George Washington Bridge is being treated, the pollution isn't being reduced, it's being displaced. It's being literally moved from Manhattan to northern Jersey. WBGO's Dave Popkin chats with blues legend Charlie Musselwhite. I always used what I learned to take me where I wanted to go and just to play my own style. I don't know where I got that idea, but I always that was my approach always, just to play what you really feel. And film critic Harlan Jacobson reviews American fiction. Jeffrey Wright plays Thelonious Monk Ellison. How's that for a mashup of references? All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Now that the MTA board has approved the proposal for congestion pricing in Manhattan and it's headed for public comment, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy is once again expressing his disgust over the current proposal. And on our Ask Governor Murphy call-in show, streaming currently at WBGO.org and hosted by Nancy Solomon, one caller, Gabriel from Summit, wanted to know what about the plan benefits New Jersey. Thanks for taking my call. So my, my question is related uh, to NJ Transit and congestion pricing. Um, I, I believe very strongly in congestion pricing, but the, all, all of what I've heard so far is that the... the uh, the profits from congestion pricing are going to the subway and uh, New Jersey commuters are going to pay for that for the most part. So the question is, how do we get uh, the tolls from congestion pricing reinvested in NJ Transit? And what are we doing about that? I, I love the question. And by the way, that would be one of the items on the table. Uh, we're pursuing this legally right now, so I probably can't say a whole lot about that. But, you know, if this plan's going to go through in some form, we want some of the, to Gabriel's point, we want some of the scratch that we could then use to fill up that gap that you are talking about earlier. Listen, I am, I, I literally mean this. I don't think there's a state with a better environmental record uh, in the past six years than New Jersey. I, I literally believe that. I used to think California, but I actually don't believe that anymore. So I, I'm, and that's not why, and that's Gabriel not promising you that. That's actual, actually been executed. So I say that to give myself some bona fides here. We're not against mitigating pollution. In fact, we're all in for that. But here's what this will do, particularly in the absence of the two extra rail tunnels in, 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 where there was a cancellation of that project before I got here. Then the Port Authority bus terminal replacement, foot dragging on that forever and always. We're finally getting that moving. If both of those realities were true, if it was a fair deal, including some of it coming back to Jersey, if the George Washington Bridge was was not excluded, uh, then you know what? I think you could get into a room and try to figure something out. But right now there are two realities that are unacceptable. One is Jersey, three, Jersey commuters are getting their eyes ripped out. Two, Jersey's not getting any of the money back, to your point, Gabriel. And three, because of the uniqueness of how the George Washington Bridge is being treated, the pollution isn't being reduced, it's being displaced. It's being literally moved from Manhattan to northern Jersey. And that's not, that's, which is why we're actually suing right now, although I'd be shocked if we don't end up taking a direct action at the Metropolitan Transit Authority, but no news on that tonight. But that's why we're suing the federal government, because we felt they should have done a complete what they call environmental impact study. Everybody at the table look at the whole regional impact, 
And then we would have said, you know, we'll accept the results even if we don't like them. And that was not done. So we're talking about congestion pricing. We never really introduced the idea for people who aren't following along. Fair so point. this is yeah. a $15 uh, uh, per car fee if you drive below 60th Street and in Manhattan. Uh, New Jersey drivers or any drivers coming across the Hudson River would get a $5 discount from that $15. But, you know, to follow up on what Gabriel said and asked, I mean, isn't it true that it's not all, I mean, that there are more New York drivers who will be paying the congestion tax than New Jersey drivers. It's not, it's not just New Jersey drivers and, and, and along the same lines, New Jersey commuters who ride the train into Manhattan also take the MTA around the city. So they benefit from better funding for the MTA. So how, yeah. how would you answer those things? I guess, but I, the MTA is not my responsibility. Listen, I have said this, and you've, you've seen Mayor Adams, with whom we have a great working relationship. Would you – let me add a dumb question. You're the mayor of New York. You're trying to get – New York City back on its feet, including the Central Business District in Manhattan post-COVID. You're giving people another reason not to come in. And I I don't know for the life of me why folks would support that. Again, I'm not... I've got the, I think, the credibility to say we we believe in we need a better environment and we need to fight climate change and pollution and all that. But this is just not, the, in, in my humble opinion, the right way to do it. They did make a couple of concessions. In fairness, this is there's a I, I, folks should also know that there's a, a a separate board approved a plan, and I guess mm-hmm. the MTA has preliminarily approved it, so it's out for public comment. And I would I would strongly suggest folks in New York or New Jersey to weigh in on and and, and comment on that. They did make some concessions. Buses were uh, were exempted, which I think is a good thing. Um, and they reduced the overnight numbers. Uh, we wanted them to go to zero. They went down, I think, by 75%. But it's not, in my humble opinion, and I, now I'm joined by many, particularly in North Jersey, it's not where it needs to be. You can hear the entire Ask Governor Murphy program at WBGO.org. This year, WBGO's Dave Popkin has been enjoying interviewing some of the greats of the blues world, and his latest guest has plenty of stories to tell. It's my honor and pleasure to be joined now by uh, a real living, breathing, blues legend, harp playing, singing, guitar slinging. He is the man. Uh, Blues Hall of Fame, 33 Blues Music Awards, 13-time Grammy nominee and a winner in 2013 for his album with Ben Harper entitled Get Up. I'm speaking, of course, of Charlie Musselwhite. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, but I'll get better. (laughs) (laughs) well you have been getting better i love the most recent record for alligator mississippi sun s-o-n because you were born there it felt like i was sitting on your front porch it felt very immediate and stripped down and i really loved it why did you decide to do a record like that well it was in the middle of the pandemic i'm here in clarksdale mississippi and three blocks away a good friend of mine has a studio and since I wasn't out on the road tour and I was hanging out there a lot, he's got a lot of guitars laying around and uh, I was just fooling around playing tunes. And he said, Hey, you mind if I tape some of these? So every time I'd go over, we'd record another couple of tunes. And uh, at one point my wife said, you know, this could be an album. We started thinking of it that way and added a 
bass player and drummer on a couple of tunes, and I overdubbed my harmonica, and we had an album. So it was just kind of a, a lark. It just took us where it wanted to go. The tunes are, you know, Stanley Brothers and John Lee and 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 some of those old tunes, plus a lot of your originals as well. But it's it's almost like a time capsule. I always played guitar, you know, often just for myself. Everything had come to a halt with the pandemic, and this was me just being at home, <laughs> pretty much. I mentioned John Lee Hooker briefly, and I know that you had a, a close relationship. Uh, he was your best man, right? Yeah, when I got married to Henrietta in 1981. What, what were some of those uh, some of those good memories or good times that you had with Mr. Hooker? He loved a good laugh and a good joke, and uh, he'd get as deep as he wanted to get too. I mean, he was quite a guy, uh, and one of the real original blues guys. I mean, nobody sounded like him on guitar or singing. His style of guitar was so unique; it still fascinates me. It's a sound. It's unlike anybody's sound. It really captures the blues in a real deep way, I think. I wish he had played more guitar. In in later years, he just would mostly sing with his band. But when he was just sitting down playing guitar by himself, boy, it was as as good as it gets. Did you have a favorite harp player or or, or a couple that you really tried to model yourself after? When I was a teenager in Memphis, I'd go around to junk stores and used furniture stores looking for old 78s, blue 78s. And I really liked the way the first Sonny Boy sounded, John Lee Williamson. And I still really love his sound. It's not complicated, but it's so infectious. And even though it's not complicated, nobody can play that and sound like him. Well, I don't run no fiddle station, I don't sell no gas. I done brought my car, my boy, is he too fast. You got to bottle it up and go. You got to bottle it up and go. You know the high five mama, this papa got you one. It's interesting how some real simple things cannot be reproduced. Like Jimmy Reed, that's the simplest guitar figure you can think of, but nobody can sound like that. You can play it all day long. It won't sound like Jimmy Reed. And there's people that that can't sound like you. And and this is like one of those you could tell me, but you'd have to kill me things. But how do you get your tone? Like, is it is it a particular uh, you know amplifier, microphone? Just the, the the way that you approach it. From the very beginning, I always thought that the idea was just to play your own blues. You know, I got inspired listening to other players, and I would pick up some of their licks off of records or listen to them in person. But I always used what I learned to uh, 
take me where I wanted to go and uh, just to play my own style. I don't know where I got that idea, but I always that was my approach always, just to play what you really feel and not something you memorized off a record. I know that there's harp players and guitar players that you sit and listen to them and you, you think, oh, that's from that record, that's from that tune, and now he's doing this, and okay, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Whatever works, I guess, but my way was just to play from your heart what you feel. Your own blues, as everybody does, but you were digging ditches and driving trucks and, and living a real life while you were still trying to pursue music, correct? I didn't have any uh, uh, goal to play this music on stage, to be in the spotlight, to have a band and tour. I didn't have any. If you had told me that these old blues records you listen to and the stuff you're playing, that someday you could have a career, I would think you were, you know, not thinking straight, you know, because <laughs> nobody my age was really into that kind of music, black or white. You know, it just, I remember working in factories in Chicago with black guys my age, and I talk about how I went to see Muddy Waters over the weekend. I said, Muddy Waters, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and they say, man, you're listening to the old folks' music. You got to get up with the times. I said, well, I like Muddy Waters. I like Howlin' Wolf, too. Howlin' Wolf. Man, that's my parents' music. You know, they just thought I was nuts that I like blues. So I didn't see uh, any career out there in front of me. And in fact, I never thought of it that way. It's just I loved the music and I just had to play it. But the way things worked out, even when I first started hanging out in blues clubs in Chicago, I wasn't going around asking to sit in or nothing. Uh, this was like adult music. I was a teenager when I got to Chicago. It wasn't anybody my age that I knew of playing this music. When Muddy found out that I played, Muddy thought I was a fan. You know, I would hang around and would talk. I'd request tunes or something. And a waitress I knew told Muddy, you ought to hear Charlie play harmonica. And that just changed everything. He insisted I sit in. And other guys heard me sitting in with Muddy, and they offered me gigs. and. Thought, wow, you're going to pay me to play this harmonica? That really got me focused. <laughs> and then as time went on, I met uh, Butterfield and Bluefield and Barry Goldberg and other guys that were my age that were actually playing. They were playing, you know, uh, Nick Gravenitis and Paul uh, Butterfield were playing uh, fraternity parties in Hyde Park in Chicago. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. You could actually have some fans and play for people that dance and make some money doing this. Hmm. So that was my ticket out of the factory. <laughs> and I saw that documentary with all those guys in it, uh, talking about, you know, Chicago blues. And despite the fact that Muddy and Wolf and Magic Sam and all, all these guys, they were being discriminated against in this country. Right. And yet they let you guys come and sit in. They befriended you. They let you go to their houses, right? They were totally cool with with you as musicians and as people. And I, I, f I find that really generous. Well, the music was dying out. I mean, it, it was it reached it was an end of an era as far as people were thinking. So here comes somebody that knows who you are, has your records, respects you as a person and a musician. I mean, they were really flattered that uh, we would seek them out. And I would, you know, a guy like me would show up at some of these rough, rough clubs 
alone and see and coming from Memphis, I already knew how to drink <laughs> and uh, be there till they closed down. You know, it was interesting to them, flattering. And, and uh, how could they not appreciate somebody that appreciated them and respected them? So they were eager to pass on what they knew and to help a guy like me out. You know, they're very encouraging. Who were the big guys on the scene when you were a teenager growing up in Memphis? Was it Elvis? I mean, Johnny Cash? I kind of knew Elvis. I had his phone number, and uh, he would have parties around town. I could call him up and find out where the party was going to be. He would rent, like, a, a theater and show the latest, like, two of the latest movies and a whole bunch of Roadrunner cartoons because Elvis loved the Roadrunner. Or he would rent the whole fairgrounds or a skating rink or something, and it always go from midnight to dawn. So that was kind of fun. I didn't really... I can't say I really knew Elvis. We were acquainted. I would say hi or something, but I don't think I ever had a real conversation with him. And but uh and I used to see Johnny Cash, he would come to the basketball games because his brother Tommy Cash played on the basketball team where I went to high school. And uh, him and Dewey Phillips would be hanging out there. But I was hanging out down on Beale Street and with guys like Will Shade and Furry Lewis. Earl Bell and Willie Borum and Red Roby and Johnny Moment and Groaning Little Bit and Groaning Cat, learning the blues. I, I didn't know I was preparing myself for a career. I'd have paid a lot more attention. <laughs> yeah, like as great as Chicago is, and, and you're synonymous with Chicago, and as great as Nashville and New Orleans are, Memphis is a special uh, music city. I, I went on a like a music junket visiting some some of these cities a few years ago and you know went to nashville is great went to memphis and it was just the music was so diverse and there was so much soul there still and you talk about the guys you play with you can still walk down beale street and see 20 different kinds of bands well when i was hanging out on beale street it was the real beale street pawn shops and cafes and bars and the whole neighborhood that the whole neighborhood is gone it's interesting that I was lucky enough to know these these guys I knew were like the original guys that recorded back in the 20s. Hmm. When I got to Chicago, the guys up there like Wolf and Muddy, they had learned from those guys. <laughs> and uh, or some of them just only heard about them on their records, you know, and I actually got to know them. And then I got to meet Big Joe Williams in Chicago. and We roomed together. and He was like one of the last of the old time itinerant blues guys that knew Robert Johnson and knew Charlie Patton that brooming with him was quite an experience. <laughs> That's uh, an education, I'm sure. You still have one of his guitars, right? A friend of mine lived near Big Joe and uh, inherited uh, a guitar of his. And uh, th then when he died, a mutual friend brought that by here in Clarksdale. And I just picked it up and play some uh, just a, I just made up this instrumental I never played it before or since I even remember how it goes it's just a spontaneous instrumental I call it remembering Big Joe because I played it on Big Joe's guitar went to a store in Nashville it's out there somewhere <laughs> Thank you.
But Joe has a lot of guitars. You wouldn't call him a fine guitar. I'd pick it up and try to play it. it The strings were like cables, you know, but he just played it like butter. And he would have like a shoehorn stuck under the bridge and masking tape and holes in it for for, to stick the three other three tuning pegs to make it a nine string guitar. He could get a tone though. (laughs) A couple of your best records that I really enjoy are with Ben Harper. And, you know, one of them won the Grammy, as I mentioned, but um, you guys really seem to click. Uh, What's your relationship like with Ben, both personally and musically? Well, we have been discussing making a new blues record and, uh, there's been some talk of doing it in Memphis at Royal Studio with uh, Boo Mitchell. And I think that'd be a great place to make a blues record. I couldn't get any better. Uh, but he's so inventive. And um, it seems to me he came up with a way of playing blues, but really modern, but at the same time with traditional feeling to it. His lyrics are so... Uh, compelling, I guess would be the word. He comes up with great songs. Touring with him was really something because his audience, 99% or more, had no idea who I was. They never heard of me. But by the end of the night, they knew. I like to find ways to insert what I know into any situation. The same thing with Cindy Lauper. You know, here I am on the road with her doing her hits like Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And so it's really fun for me to put blues into her tunes. Charlie, I really appreciate all the time today. Uh, Continued uh, good health, good luck, and uh, keep playing the blues. We need it. Well, I don't really have anything else to do. (laughs) I love it, and it loves me, and it keeps me going, and it's endlessly fascinating, and I got lots more to do. It's great talking with you. You too. The great Charlie Musselwhite. You can hear Dave Popkins' full interview with Charlie Musselwhite at WBGO.org. American Fiction started under the radar at this year's Toronto Film Festival, but emerged as the festival's People's Choice Award winner. As it steps front and center in the the end-of-the-year releases, our film critic Harlan Jacobson loves what the film is up to. Jeffrey Wright plays Thelonious Monk Ellison. How's that for a mashup of references from the offbeat jazz man to the Invisible Man author, who gets furloughed from his university modern American lit teaching job in L.A. for hitting the third rail of culture cancellation by teaching Flannery O'Connor's fabled 1955 short story, The Artificial, and here's where you put the N-word, a white girl with a magenta dye job in the front row says the N-word in the title makes her uncomfortable. Well, I'm black, and I got over it, Ellison says. I'm pretty sure you can. She can't. 
she lodges a complaint with the dean. Next thing he knows, the newly ex-professor Ellison is back in his childhood bed in Boston, grappling with long-dormant family issues and what to do about his failed career as a serious novelist. Based on the novel Erasure by Percival Everett and directed by Cord Jefferson making his feature film debut, the film fearlessly jumps into hand-to-hand combat between authenticity and for-sale identity politics and keeps its sense of humor. Ellison is appalled attending a book reading of the runaway bestseller We Lives in the Ghetto by Sintara Golden, played by Issa Rae, as a black woman author behind plate glass eyewear who's 10 or 15 years younger and grasps writing for the white marketplace way better than he does. Maybe it's worth noting that her first name, Sintara, is also an anagram for old blue eyes. She's written her bestseller in Step and Fetch It, Blacklish, and it's a monster hit. Here, Monk drops in on Sintara at a sold-out author's panel. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is gonna be a real father this time around. Bright's presence in a film always signifies serious territory. But here, he seduces us with his great power as a black humor comedian, with increasingly dire expression about the stupidity of the white culture market that beats authenticity to death. Much of the shading around Monk Ellison's character is contemporary family politics, much about the rivalry with his accomplished siblings, a sister, Tracy Ellis Ross, who's an OBGYN and gives more than she gets. A reprobate gay brother, dermatologist, Sterling K. Brown, whose preferences run skin deep. An Alzheimer-plagued mother, Leslie Uggams, now 80, who's forgotten the complicated family dynamic she created. And a potential soulmate across the street, a divorced lawyer, Erica Alexander, more of an idea about than a character who knows where the boundaries are, usually just after they're crossed. This is the state of the black middle class today that American fiction stakes out, answering the question, what fresh hell is this? And yet the film reflects something worth remarking. The Ellison family is torn apart by all the usual stuff, but it is warm, close, and loving. You want to belong to this family the way Americans in the 50s first looked at fictional Jews and decided Whatever they were doing looked better than whatever white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were doing in power. Enraged by the appetite for bogus black, Ellison dashes off a rogue novel, My Pathology, purposely misspelled with an F, which he thinks is so evident a parody of the modern state of the black novel that out of embarrassment, he creates a fictitious identity, Stag R. Lee, as Jefferson ransacks culture for fun references. It's an anonymous author, an escaped convict, no less, to distance himself from the disgrace of shameless pandering. Wrong bet. Arthur's agent, played wonderfully by John Ortiz, loves it. The Midtown White publishers, who can't wait to be honorary black revolutionaries, are wild to make the fugitive author the publishing sensation of the year. 
as if Ellison's convict somehow stumbled out of the famous party Leonard and Felicia Bernstein threw for the Black Panthers at the Dakota in 1970. It's rueful fun watching Monk and Arthur play out the con over the phone with the white publishers. Exasperated, wanting a way out of this farce, Ellison pushes the Ivy Leaguers even further by insisting on a title change to our culture's number one four-letter word. The film waits a beat. What do you think they say? The editors love it. The F word it is. This has gone too far. Stag Arley is still on the run for authorities. You haven't done anything. It's not like they can arrest you. I wish I could go back to not selling books. Is it bad to cater to people's tastes? People want to love you, Monk. You should let them love all of you. There's already so much buzz because of the movie deal. Michael B. Jordan is circling. We want to put him on the cover in one of those um, uh, scarves, I guess you would call them, tied around his head. A do-rag? Do-rag, that's it. Do-rag and a tank top with the muscles showing. Oh, something called the fire department. <laughs> Complications ensue, of course. Ellison ends up on a five-person National Book Award-style jury with Centara Golden and three white authors to name the book of the year. That's when Jefferson's script turns the camera around and looks out at the audience like the mythical bird that flies in ever smaller concentric circles till it disappears up its own farce. American fiction is funny, withering, and sticks the landing perfectly. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal, which is also now a podcast. You can hear all the past shows by going to wbgo.org slash studios. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.